0: Good evening and welcome, my name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, Alan Jones has been calling it a national economic suicide note for years and we repeat it almost weekly here on ADH TV. The policies to replace cheap, reliable energy with renewables will cost you, the average Australian, a fortune and all for an environmental goal that is as unachievable as it is unnecessary. The Australian Financial Reviews Energy and Climate Summit attended by all the big hitters in the industry, including Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen, admitted this as much today. Alinta Chief Executive Jeff Dymery told the conference that punters can expect power bills to increase by 35% next year. He said, quote, it's horrendous. It's unpalatable. We don't want energy consumers getting their power bills and setting fire to them. Well, that's one way to stay warm in winter, I suppose. Dimery wasn't the only senior industry figure to sound the alarm. Origin CEO Frank Calabria said, quote, Based on current wholesale prices, those orders orders of magnitude sound familiar to me. Your federal energy minister, Chris Bowen, wasn't moved. He is steaming ahead with a plan that will ensure those dire predictions come true. The predictions are far from conjecture. They are being experienced already now in Europe where businesses are shutting down and people are congregating in warm spaces because they can't afford to heat their own homes. But speaking at the conference, Bowen dismissed claims that what is happening in Europe is a taste of what Australia will experience next winter. He said right-wing commentators were attributing the European energy crisis to renewables when it was instead caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He said, quote, the price of gas in Europe is around nine times that of renewables. And yet some geniuses argue the problem is too much reliance on renewables, Unquote. Bowen is an idiot who is going to bankrupt Australian businesses and force Australians to freeze in the dark next winter. He fails to mention that Britain is reviving the fracking of gas, Germany is firing up coal and gas-fired power stations, and LNG import plants are being rushed into operation to keep the lights on. The energy and energy crisis in France is so bad that the City of Lights has already started plunging itself into darkness at night. The Wall Street Journal reports that, quote, tourists are showing up to monuments for late night photos only to find somber silhouettes. And even the Eiffel Tower, symbol of France's ra- rise as an industrialized nation, is hitting the off switch early, unquote. If ever there was an opportunity for solar panels and windmills to prove their viability, it is this winter in Europe where gas is 10 times the price it was three years ago and is predicted to go even higher over the next year. Renewables have enjoyed more than a decade of lucrative subsidies. So now is their chance to shine, right? It's not happening. Instead, Europe is reducing its production of solar panels. Industry website PV Tech says around 35 gigawatts of solar panel manufacturing projects in Europe are at risk of being mothballed because they're no longer profitable. One French solar panel manufacturer, SunPower, shut its doors last week after 10 years of operation. It had a capacity to produce 150,000 panels a year. Well, it's gonna get even worse for those parts of Europe that already partially rely on renewables this winter. Thanks to the La Nina weather pattern, Europe will be unusually cold and the winds will be unusually calm, making the existing solar panels and windmills even more useless. This is the future that Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese are planning for Australia. Their contempt for conventional energy production is essentially a contempt for you, the average punter who just thinks it's dead set madness to ignore the cheap fuel supplies we already have in the ground? Bowen quotes a World Bank analyst saying that high commodity prices mean, quote, policymakers need to prioritise policies that encourage greater energy efficiency and accelerate the transition towards low carbon energy sources, unquote. Talk about genius. What if you don't have to pay high prices, Chris? What if it's just lying around in our backyard just waiting to be dug up? Bowen also said, quote, it's been clear for some time that the role of coal generation in Australia's energy mix would necessarily change, Unquote. Really, why? He doesn't say. Here's another brilliant irony from Europe that is pertinent in Australia for a couple of reasons. It wasn't long ago that Paris was choosing to switch off the Eiffel Tower's lights. This video is from Earth Hour in 2018. Earth Hour was the annual symbolic gesture dreamed up by journalists at Fairfax newspapers in Australia that spread around the world. It was meant to promote the use of renewable energy to end the climate change crisis, which supposedly threatens life on Earth. But now the tower's lights are being switched off because of a genuine crisis. High prices caused by short supply of gas and coal that actually does threaten lives and livelihoods. And it's not a choice. President Emmanuel Macron is telling the French to voluntarily switch off lights or face blackouts. Bowen, who's always keen to emulate his leftist heroes in Europe, will be making similar warnings in Australia next winter. Well, you have to ask how much failure will Victorians tolerate before they rise up and get rid of the financially incompetent, religiously intolerant and politically treacherous government led by Premier Daniel Andrews. Andrews knows he's on the nose. He didn't appear at the AFL grand final last month, nor does he dare appear in public for fear of copying an angry and thoroughly justified spray from an otherwise decent and hardworking punter who has lost everything in the pandemic lockdown, or because of some other policy that favors big business and unions at the expense of the little guy. Here's Andrews making a rare appearance outside, courtesy of Reignite Democracy Australia. the, The appearance was to take a photo in his electorate with some of his few local supporters, The whole thing lasted not much more than a minute. Look how quick and stage managed it is and how prepared Andrews is with protection and a getaway car. How can a man who feels so unsafe on the streets of his own state be leading in the polls for an election in seven weeks? To get an answer to that, let's bring in Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs. Gideon, welcome.
1: Great to be here as always, my friend. Great to see you.
0: Gideon, there's talk of Andrews being on shaky ground even in his own electorate. Is that right?
1: Look, I hope that's right. And uh, it's looking competitive in Mulgrave. But just to give you an example of, or to give you an idea of what kind of seat Daniel Andrews is, is uh, he's sitting on a primary vote after a recent redistribution of about 60%. So he would have to lose at least 10% on a primary basis uh, in order to get in anywhere close to losing. And even then, the Green vote will probably preference him and top him up. That said, that uh, as o- is often the case in le- leaders' seats, especially when you have a leader as uh, diabolical and divisive as Dan Andrews is, there are a lot of candidates entering the, uh, the fray. There are a lot of independents and minor party candidates. It's like the Victorians Party and the Freedom Party and so on. They are organised. They seem well-financed. They are certainly motivated. So with the right preferences, you never know. The other thing you know about Andrew, uh, about Mulgrave is it is not a dead, dead, dead Red Labour seat like somewhere like a Werribee or a St Albans or something would be. Uh, it's sort of in that battler middle uh, ground and the primary vote that Dan Andrews has uh, I think is at a bit of a high watermark because of the enormous swing Dan Andrews got last time. Finally, Mulgrave is the kind of seat where there would be a lot of people who, are, who may have supported Dan Andrews last time or historically, uh, but now are less inclined to do so because Mulgrave is one of those seats where lockdowns would have hurt particularly hard. So I'm not going to uh, put a bet down, just yet on Mulgrave against Dan Andrews, but I am quietly hopeful and in politics you never, never, never know.
0: Sounds like there's a lot of moving parts. It'll be interesting to watch. Now, um, speaking of which, one of his former allies, the United Firefighters Union, today launched a campaign against Andrews, accusing him of putting lives at risk. What's that all about?
1: So the campaign publicly has a few grievances, one of which is out of date fire trucks, uh, things like inadequate tw- training for firemen or fire people or fire uh, non-binary or whatever you call them these days. Uh, and things like uh, lax laws when it comes to uh, oh and issues for firemen like smoke, inhalation and things like that. But you have to look at the subtext with a very, what has historically been, at least in the Andrews government, a very, very powerful union, which is the United Firefighters Union. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 2014 state election. That was the one, of course, where Dan Andrews became Premier to begin with. And I remember actually as a uh, then Liberal Party volunteer being on booths uh, during pre-polls and things like that. And there were UFU unionists in fireman costumes there, giving out how-to-vote cards, going up to people saying, if you do not vote for Dan Andrews and Labor, uh, your house will catch on fire and you will die. That's how how toxic it was around polling booths, partly as a result of the heavies from the unions coming down and backing in Labor. To have them turn to elections later is a pretty, pretty big uh, indicator of how things are going with Dan's, as you said, closest allies, particularly because Dan has backed them to the hilt. Never forget that Dan, Dan's re-election campaign almost got derailed last time because he backed in the uh, United Firefighters Union and effectively, cannibalizing the volunteer firefighting organizations like the CFA, for example. Uh, For them to turn now makes me think that whether it's the public grievances of the UFU or something we don't know about, uh, Dan has not delivered to the unions what he promised. What it is or really is, we don't quite know, uh, but it certainly makes for an interesting dynamic and it makes it look like the, the coalition that Dan has managed to cobble together for all these years might be at breaking point.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, a man who is, is afraid to appear on the streets now is losing his backroom backers. So uh, it makes you wonder what, uh, what's left up his sleeve. Now, um, last week, Dan, Dan made a strategic intervention in the appointment of a new CEO of the Essendon Football Club, saying it was wrong for a Christian to fill the role. He calls himself a Christian himself. Now, I've heard that even the Muslim community has turned away from labour as a result of this. Has Has this stunt backfired as much as it seems?
1: Well, all faith communities are concerned. And I know that because I spent a part of last week in synagogue for Yom Kippur and there were con- congregants there who were saying, this is a very, very bad precedent. You know, my people know what religious persecution looks like and it does not end well. We can see the signs coming. First, they came for the Christians to, paraphr- to paraphrase uh, the old adage. But look, this is, uh, I think this is vintage Dan playbook. He does wheel out these woke trinkets once in a while for his, uh, for his base. And it is his base because... Don't forget, in the last election, Dan, basically demolished the Greens. Yes, they picked up an extra lower house seat, the seat of Brunswick, but they were left with only one seat upstairs out of, I think, five or six they held Previously, uh, The problem is, Dan, on the other side of the equation, I think Dan might be underestimating the strength of faith communities as a voting block uh, They are located largely in outer suburban seats where Dan must win and must hold to hold government. They are organised, they are politically informed, and they are, uh, as, as with the independently-minded voters of Mulgrave, they are motivated. So uh, it was interesting to see this intervention, or more to the point to see the aftermath and the fallout, including very strong... Uh, Uh, comments from senior people in the Catholic Church, for example. Uh, If faith communities turn on Dan en masse, he could have a big, big problem on his hands. So we have to wait and see uh, how that plays out.
0: Okay, well let's talk about the report you you published at the IPA last week. It, uh, you know, not not, uh, moving on from Dan Andrews too far, it paints a pretty grim picture of the economic uh, circumstances in Victoria. What are the main findings?
1: You're right. It's fr- fr- uh, grim, Fred, and it's grim even for you know economic economic doomsday preppers like myself. Uh, it, the fact of the matter is, Victoria has the worst economy on a range of vital indicators than any other state in Australia. The highest level of taxation, the highest level of debt, the highest level of government spending, the ha- fastest growing state uh, uh, state government expenditure, and the fastest growing uh, public sector workforce as well. Uh, what that brings us to is peril- perilously close to the last time Victoria had such a fiscal disaster, which was the late 80s and early 90s, when the Labor administrations of John Kane and Joan Kerner sent Victoria spiraling into a a cascading series of financial disasters, up to and including uh, the uh, collapse of the State Bank of Victoria. Uh, Now, according to the indicators uh, as written up in the report by my colleagues Dan Wild and Kevin Yao last week, uh, we are in a way worse position than we were even back then. Uh, So, Uh, it remains to be seen the exact fallout from these economic indicators. I think they'll lag a bit and we might not see the true pain bite until 2023. Uh, But Victorians who, the increasingly diminishing number of us who've lived through, and I don't count myself as one of those either, although I'm a keen historian of it or student of the history of it. uh, The fact of the matter is Victorians who remember those days should be very, very, very worried because they're coming again and they might get here faster than we think all those
0: all those economic indicators though Gideon, and they said i mean uh, to a socialist that's a socialist paradise isn't it <laughs>
1: Yeah, the road to socialist hill is paved with the noble intentions of modern monetary theory and the (laughs) the belief uh, in the power of government to fix any and all of the world's problems. Again, we will wait and see. We've been here before. But, you know, Fred, that doesn't stop uh, the left getting into government as soon as the debt is repaid, as Jeff Kennett did uh, very, very strongly in the 90s. uh, That's the part of Victorian history I did live through. Uh, I, I came of age politically during that time. I remember those times of dynamism, of Jeff Kennett building things, of state finances getting back under control. But again, people have short memories and uh, I suppose they like all the free stuff. So, uh, But, you know, there's no such thing as a free luncheon. The piper will have to be paid eventually.
0: Exactly. Now, tell us about the Suburban Rail Loop. This this is, according to your report, this is the one, this is the project that will tip Victoria almost into bankruptcy, uh, unable to service the debt. Is that right? What, what does the Suburban Rail Loop do and how... Um, How perilous is it as a project?
1: Well, to understand the suburban rail loop, you have to understand the modus operandi of Dan. Uh, You know, he's had, I guess, three planks in his public persona. One was keeping us safe during COVID. Uh, That doesn't rate as well as it perhaps used to for obvious reasons. The other one, as I just explained, is wheeling out the woke uh, things like the new Pride Cinder in Melbourne and all sorts of other things. But the third thing is he likes to build things. He likes to be on the six o'clock news in his high viz with his hard hat on showing proactivity, which I suppose you can understand the political strategy strategy of because he won office largely off the back of the fact that the uh, Ballyu-Napthine government was completely useless and didn't do almost anything other than put PSOs on train stations. So you can understand the political motivation. But to answer your question of the suburban rail loop is, as the name suggests, a rail loop stretching around the outer suburbs, uh, sort of snaking its way from uh, places like uh, Clayton in the southeast over to Werribee in the west. Uh, The problem is, of course, that Uh, the stages one and two alone of this gargantuan rail loop will cost Victorians $200 billion. And as I just explained, the state is flat cold, broke right now. We cannot afford it. Uh, But of course, the fetishisation of rail projects is something that is very, very dear to the heart of people who cheaply stand to gain from the mainly inner city people. What they don't understand is that Australia, this isn't Tokyo or London, we do not have the population density to make extensive investment in rail a worthwhile uh, thing to pursue. Australians love cars for that reason. It's very difficult to get Australians out of their cars. Uh, But we also don't have the construction costs of somewhere we like China, which is often held up as the poster child for all these wonderful railway networks. Well, as I said, one, stretches one and two of this project will cost $200 billion. We can't afford it. We don't need it. It never stacked up. Even Infrastructure Australia and groups like that are scratching their heads wondering why we need this thing. Uh, and as has been explained by yourself and others, it will push Victoria over the financial, uh, the financial cliff. So... Uh, I think Matthew Guy has made a strong start in saying he will cancel that project uh, and and rediver expenditure. So I guess if nothing else, this election will be a a, a, uh, referendum or what is even for Labor by Labor standards, a horrendous and obnoxious uh, white elephant on a gargantuan scale.
0: Or dead set loopy, as they might say, Gideon. Now the Age newspaper published the result of a poll of 5,500 Victorians today which said the top three issues in this election are, (laughs) wait for it, integrity, health and the environment. Now Gideon, how did integrity find its way into that top three?
1: Look, I'd love to think that it is because Dan's long—you know—Dan has more baggage than Jaja Gabor at Heathrow after his term of government in terms of uh, integrity issues hanging over his government, whether it be red shirts, whether it be the code inquiry, whether it be lawyer X, uh, whether it be the perennial—the perennial. Uh, the perennial whistleblowing of people like Adam Somyarek. But I I really do think it's all because people broadly don't trust politicians that much in this day and age. People think that not just Liberal, not just Labor, but the entire political class does not have their best interests at heart. I think people are starting to get the impression that politicians of all stripes are in it for themselves. That's why we're seeing this focus on integrity. Don't forget that all this uh, integrity is sort of climbing its way to the top of the political charts, as it were. But that isn't necessarily translating into votes for Matthew Guy, partly because, and this is something even I don't completely understand, that lobster with the mobster moniker that Labor uh, showered down on Matthew Guy the last time he was leader of the 2018 election has stuck. I speak to friends of mine who are running for the Liberal Party in certain seats, and they have punters coming up to them saying, oh, is there a free lobster policy with that? Uh. (laughs) So... Uh, yeah, integrity is climbing its way up to the top of the list. Will that translate into votes for the coalition? Maybe, maybe not, maybe at the margins. Uh, but, again, I think it's just uh, due to the, 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 the broader failures of the political class, Liberal, Labor, State, Federal, uh, all the way down. People just don't trust politicians. And you know what? I don't either, and I don't blame them.
0: <laughs> well said, even though it is a pretty grim summation. But thanks for your time, Gideon Rosner.
1: Always grim, baby. As R.E.M. said, it's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine.
0: (laughs) So do I, Gideon. Always always a pleasure to have you. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs, which is doing more than just about any organisation in Victoria to hold the Andrews government to account. Well, a coalition of environmental charities in the United Kingdom has made a shocking discovery. No, it's not that rich people give more to charity, that's old news. It's that the charities themselves are, how do I put this politely, a bit racist. This is the finding of a poll conducted by a group called Wildlife and Countryside Link, or WCL. It found that 86% of the leaders of environmental charities thought that greater staff diversity was a good idea. But, and this is the key figure, only 22% of them said they were actually doing anything about it. WCL's chief executive, Richard Benwell, said, quote, people want to be part of an inclusive, diverse and socially progressive movement. They know that saving nature will depend on the talents and energy of everyone working together. It also shows that despite this conviction, many organizations are still in the starting blocks on diversity and inclusion," unquote. The WCL doesn't seem to have contemplated the possibility that the reason there are so few colored and ethnic types in their ranks is that there aren't, they aren't interested. It is, after all, awfully condescending to simply assume that such people want to be part of their movement. Have they considered asking them in a separate survey, perhaps? Then again, asking minorities if they want to spend their working hours hanging out with boring, earnest, middle-class, white, environmental crusaders? Well, I think the answer writes itself. Well, American hip hop star Kanye West, who's now done the Aussie thing with his name and shortened it to yay, gave a fascinating interview with Tucker Carlson on Fox News on the weekend. Here's a sample of it.
2: For people that have some form of influence, whether it's an educated black woman like my mother that became the head of the English department at Chicago State University, or whether it's the most influential, um, white woman on the planet, being my ex-wife, they have people that are around them at all times telling them what to be afraid of. It's like not what to do or say specifically, it's what to be afraid of. And if you have a person that isn't afraid of them, you know, like a Russell Brand or Candace Owens, it's not that we have to agree with this, but They're not afraid. They're not afraid to state what their opinion is? Yes.
0: Not afraid to state their opinion? Since when was that controversial in pop music? The answer to that is simple. It became controversial when pop culture was overtaken by mainstream corporations that profit handsomely from woke causes and upturning traditional values. The response to this interview from the woke establishment has been toxic. You get the feeling that Ye is a serious threat to their hegemony. Ye is an unlikely hero for our side of the culture wars, but he also represents the diversity of conservatives. On paper, you couldn't have two more different people than the career journalist and traditional family man Antaki Carlson and the trailblazing musician and fashion designer, Ye. Yet they get on well. Yeah, he even looks uncharacteristically nervous in Carlson's presence. Let's get Queensland law professor James Allen, who understands these culture wars better than most people, in to break it all down. James, welcome.
2: How are you, Fred? I think Tucker's changed his name to Kerr. let just call him <laughs> Kerr now. Yeah. yeah you got to be on the cutting edge of culture. Uh, I can see you
0: already you're already sporting his fashion line, James.
2: Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm off to to speak to the Liberal Party tonight, so I don't want to look too good.
0: (laughs) James, I thought pop music was meant to be about people speaking their minds. Why do you think the establishment is so upset with Ye talking to Tucker Carlson?
2: Now, I have to preface this answer by letting people know that my knowledge of uh, popular music sort of ended when the Beatles split up. (laughs) I'm pretty good on the Beatles, and then we go into a precipitous decline in my knowledge, but... uh, he is a brave man he and his uh, girlfriend or whoever it was were wearing shirts that said white lives matter and uh, he's taken a bit of heat for that which he would have said as he said it's sort of self-evident that all lives matter but uh so he's uh it's pretty interesting to get a few breakaway stars who can uh, who can see a little sanity in the world yeah well i take it he makes a bit more money than you and me fred
0: <laughs> well he can afford to upset people mind you we do it professionally yeah. too i suppose we just don't make yeah. as much money as he does.
2: But no, I don't well, I don't, Fred. I don't know how you're doing, but I definitely don't.
0: <laughs> well, do you think do you think really though? He's just doing what most intelligent people do and that is align themselves with conservatism once they get older and wiser.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he's a bit of an iconoclast and some of the some of the woke orthodoxies, the it's just a new version of puritanism and and uh, you know, there's there's going to be iconoclasts who can't stand that. And luckily, you know, some of them are quite successful.
0: Yeah, that,
2: it must be awful to be part of Hollywood and have to mouth these ridiculous platitudes all the time.
0: Yes. Well, Puritanism is is boring at the best of times, but uh, I'd say it's pretty boring these days too. Well, let's talk about oh. Daniel Smith, the new premier of Alberta. This is uh, pretty familiar ground for you because you're from Canada. That, she sounds like the Georgia Maloney of Canada. What can you tell us about her?
2: She's really interesting. So she has just been made the premier elect. So she's part of the governing party and the party base through the existing, they threw out the premier. So in Canada, they've given up for quite a while now on the idea that leaders are chosen by the sitting party room of MPs because the sitting party room MPs are, are pretty much hopeless. And they didn't want her to be the leader, but the party base elected her last week. It was a series of cast, you had to get 50% plus one of the cascading series of votes. So she won on the fifth or sixth ballot. And she had at one point run the independent business. She was the chair of the independent business in Alberta. And then she got into talk radio. She and her husband ran a small uh, restaurant outside of any of the big cities. And then she got into politics and she was with the Conservatives. And then she joined a breakaway party, the Rose which is to the right of them. And she was the leader. And then she controversially took a bunch of the members and joined back with the Conservatives. That sort of killed her career for five or six years. She apologized to everyone. She went back into talk radio. And when the former Premier, Kenny, was ousted by the party members, she threw her hat in the ring. With a solid conservative set of policies, so she supported the protesters. She has promised that there will be never again in Alberta COVID lockdown things, any kind of requirements. Um, she is going to fire the entire board of the equivalent of the you know state healthcare body. She says they're just not doing their jobs, and most controversially, she's going to bring in a sovereignty act, which basically says that Alberta will not follow the national government. Because you know, Trudeau is trying to cut back on all the oil and gas exploration. He has brought in a carbon tax that the Supreme Court all well, let me, appointed to the left-wing lips.
0: James, let me just jump in there. I'll quote that sovereignty act to you just, just for the for the viewer the benefit of the viewers. The Alberta the, the Alberta Sovereignty Act says mm. quote, it will allow the legislature of Alberta to ignore Canadian federal legislation and court orders that it believes are harmful to Albertan interests. Can you elaborate on that, James?
2: Well, uh, all the other candidates running for leader were against it. Uh, She knows it's unconstitutional. The Canadian Supreme Court, all appointed by sort of uh, centralist, mostly left-wing prime ministers, they've just upheld the carbon tax, which probably shouldn't have been upheld on the proper understanding of the sort of federal basis of the Canadian constitution, but they upheld it. Uh, So there's no hope that that Constitution, that Sovereignty Act will be upheld. But as she said, that's the point. Because she looks at places like Quebec where they fight tooth and nail and and they get more than they deserve. The problem is in Canada, you don't have an equal number of voters per constituency. Canada is basically run by the big two provinces of Ontario and Quebec. And Alberta for 50 years has seen a lot of its oil money move east. And so there is a separatist movement. It's it's you know it's not as strong as it was in Western Australia in the 1930s, but it's very strong. There's a separatist party, and she is definitely picking a fight with Trudeau. In the last three federal elections, the Liberal Party, I don't think they've won a single seat. So the left-wing liberal Justin Trudeau, they don't win any seats in Alberta. They might have won one Um, right in in neighboring Saskatchewan. They don't win any. So this is the sort of part if you could imagine in, in Alberta or sort of in Australia, a state where one party doesn't win any seats at all. Election after election after election. That's Canada. So the conservatives win in Alberta and Saskatchewan and to a large extent Manitoba. They lose out east and Ontario just decides elections. But she's angry and she's tapped into it. And she's prepared to fight for stuff. And so she, my I mean, bet is that Trudeau will roll over on a lot of things because he doesn't want to have massive fights with her.
0: Oh, really? So do, does she genuinely represent the sort of se- secessionist sentiments in Alberta? Is, is that as widespread well, as Well, she gets
2: some of those. There is a separatist party. So in Alberta, the capital city that has all the civil servants, Edmonton, that vote's left for a party called the NDP. And... All of the non-urban areas vote conservative or separatist, as in Leave Canada. And Calgary, the second city, which has all the oil and gas companies, it sort of splits. So Alberta, for the last five decades, has been a very conservative place. A couple elections ago, the left-wing NDP won for one term. Uh, there's an election coming up, I think, in middle of next year in Alberta. but. We're seeing this trend in Canada where the right of center party is actually choosing leaders who actually want to fight on culture. They want to fight on net zero. And I think the difference with, with Australia is they have moved away from letting the party room pick the leader. And that's happened in Britain. We are left with a system that used to work fine up until 50 years ago. But the professional class of politicians in this country simply does not represent their core voters, and we saw this at CPAC. You know, these people are so out of touch. They think that they did a good job. The Liberal Party did a good job during during the pandemic response. I mean, this was the most brutal, despotic, big spending, high taxing, disgraceful performance, largely brought to you by the Liberal Party of Australia. So this would not, we would not be getting leaders like this if we had a system where the party-based, the paid-up members, were choosing the leader. But it's the a big Liberal, problem.
0: Well, the Liberal Party is saying these days that the plebiscites that they organize uh, to select among uh, the members in an electorate to select candidates for that electorate solves that problem. What, what's your response to that?
2: Well, it didn't solve the problem when Mr. Morrison and Mr. Hawke refused to show up for a year. They couldn't find the time for a year and a half to show up and validate the meeting. I mean, come on. Mr. Hawke is a disgrace. And I mean, I know he's still in Parliament and he's trying to mend fences. But he and Mr. Morrison on on that front in New South Wales were awful. They have fought tooth and nail in New South Wales to stop the kind of half-hearted reforms that Tony Abbott brought in. So really, it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. Um, it goes some way to ameliorating it a little. But I think we need a system where the party, you know, if we had a system in Australia where the the party room didn't pick, didn't get the last word on the leader, then Mr Turnbull would never have become leader. He would never have taken out Abbott.
0: Indeed, indeed. No, I, I couldn't agree more. There are some pretty pretty serious structural problems with the party, and you'll probably find uh, them discussed tonight on the Sunshine Coast when you discuss one of the local branches. Yeah. James. So let's talk about the midterms in the United States. Now, most pundits are saying the Republicans will easily take the House of Representatives, but will struggle to take the Senate. This would create a deadlock. The Republicans could block Biden's second half agenda, but not get everything they want uh, through the uh, Congress. But you're saying that uh, that the Republicans are odds on to take the Senate as well as the House. What gives you this idea, James?
2: So I, I actually don't agree with the Greg Sheraton view that you know the Republicans aren't going to take the Senate. I think they are going to take the Senate. It's it's a it's a diabolically tough electoral map for them. So the listeners or re, uh, watchers need to remember that only a third of the Senate is up every two years, and right this this uh, in a month there's going to be 35 spots. There's one casual vacancy. Of those 35, 21 are already Republican seats, and 14 are Democrat. And of those 14, all 14 are in seats that Joe Biden won in 2020. It's sorry, in states Joe Biden won. So it's the worst possible map. That, that means in 2024, the Republicans are going to have a pretty easy go of things. So when you look at the ones that are in play, there's two or three uh, states where the Republicans hold the Senate spot and they look vulnerable. Ohio. But I think J.D. Vance, the author, is going to win Ohio and hold it. And I think Wisconsin now looks pretty good for the Republicans. So that leaves Pennsylvania. And I know the chattering sort of mainstream media go, oh, Dr. Oz, a Trump appointee as is, or a a Trump-supported guy as is Vance. He's a terrible candidate. And he is a bit out there, uh, Dr. Oz. But what they never go on to say is that the Democrat candidate is far worse. This Fetterman guy, he never had a job till he was 40. He's a trust fund child. His parents are loaded, he, he is really crackers. He only wears a hoodie anywhere. And he, you know, he, he, he was he's far to the left of Bernie Saunders. Uh, leave aside that he had a stroke last May. So if you're holding up Dr. Oz against uh, Fetterman, Dr. Oz looks like a lot better candidate. And so what you tend to get from these professional, mainstream sort of pseudo center-right types is they, they always wanna find fault with their own side of politics, but they don't say, well, look at, look at the Democrats. So I think I think Dr. Oz has a shot in Pennsylvania, even if he loses. That's a net loss of one for they'd need to pick up two Democrat states. So Herschel Walker, the star football player, I think he's going to take Georgia. I think they have an excellent chance in Nevada. The guy's ahead in the polls. So if he holds if, if the Republican takes Nevada, even if Dr. Oz loses Pennsylvania, they're still at 50 50. And that leaves Arizona. Republicans have a shot. Georgia, they have a shot. Um, New Hampshire, they have a pretty good shot. And even even at Washington, the far west, people are so angry out there with all the riots. So I'm thinking the Republicans are going to be net two. I think they're going to be about net two in the Senate. And uh, you have to remember all the polling overwhelmingly done by left leaning. They, they consistently oversample Democrats because Republicans don't want to answer answer their so they you know they used to have about forty percent Republican. And now it's down to around twenty eight, so they extrapolate. They they you know they're guessing about how this thing is going to break. And traditionally, you see these over, you know they over predict how the Democrats are going to do until the last week before the election when they significantly move, their predictions, so they can point to people and say, "Look how well we did." Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't but have too much meantime, confidence in the polls. Well,
0: in the in the meantime, no, they they. I,
2: um, I think they're going to be net two, net three. I, I'm happy to bet a couple of bottles of wine to any of the people who think the Republicans are going to lose the Senate.
0: Well, you heard it here first. The uh, the Republicans are going to win the Senate, and anyone who take want to take James up on that bet, email me here at ADH TV. James,
2: now no, mind you. No. So some of these wealthy, woke, top uh, corporate types can probably uh, afford better
0: wine than <laughs> yeah, I can. They'll be betting bottles of Grange on you, James, so be ready. James Allen, thanks for your yeah. time. Thanks, Fred. That's Queensland Law Professor James Allen. And just before I go, you might have noticed US President Joe Biden is struggling to count to three.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Made
2: in America.
0: It's now abundantly clear that the president is suffering from cognitive decline. It should be overwhelmingly urgent for him to submit to a cognitive test. That the mainstream media isn't calling for that is alarming enough. But remember when his predecessor Donald Trump boasted in 2020 about passing a cognitive test in 2018? That test was called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test and looks in some ways like an entrance exam for primary school. Trump was roundly mocked for it which is the expected response from people who can't reconcile having a reality TV star in the Oval Office, regardless of his experience as a high-level negotiator. Whatever Trump's intellectual shortcomings, his presidency was one of the most effective and constructive in recent times, and he makes Biden's look even more catastrophic. Biden is so confused, he would struggle holding the Montreal test the right way up. One of the questions asks to identify animals such as a lion, a rhinoceros, and a camel. Biden would probably think one is a chocolate chip ice cream and then ask for permission to take a nap. But that doesn't mean his minders should advise him to take any type of cognitive test. I said it should be urgent, but in truth, it's not. Because if he failed the test and was forced to step down, The world would be cursed with his cackling word salad sidekick Kamala Harris as his substitute. Then again, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing either. It would certainly prove once and for all that selecting someone for her gender and skin color, as Harris was in 2020, is a dumb idea. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow night at eight o'clock for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.